It is a joy to be with you here today. Chloe and I will be at the church as members for two more Sundays, so this week and next week, so we're soaking up every prayer and every song. We really love this congregation lots. If you could turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, and we'll be reading to uh, chapter 4, verse 12. So turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, and we'll be reading to chapter 4, verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there are people right over there that are more than happy to give you one. Just put up your hand, and that Bible can be yours. Except, Terrence, that will not be yours, because I know you have a Bible. (laughs) Um, So the message will be from 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12, but we'll be reading from 3.18 to 4.12. Hear what Holy Scripture says. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that we as a congregation may receive the implanted word with meekness. We pray, Father, that you would convict us in your word, that you would help us see that we are needy sinners in need of a Savior and continue to humble ourselves before you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. It can be a funny sight to see a strong-willed child who wants to do things on their own that they aren't yet physically able to do. 
With my mom here today, I can readily admit that I was that strong-willed child growing up, as she can attest to. For, for example, imagine a young boy that wants to bike on their own in a two-wheeler like their siblings, but they keep on falling down. Their parents offer help, but the boy wants to do it all by themselves, even though he's not that much bigger than the bike. The boy hasn't come to terms with his weakness. What he needs to do is accept his weakness and rely upon his parents. But he just doesn't want to do that. Sometimes we can be like this child as it relates to our weaknesses. You may know that you are weak, but rather than accepting your weakness and turning to God in your weakness, often we can rely on our own strength. In the book of 2 Corinthians, we have an example of the Apostle Paul accepting his weakness. You can see an example of a man who recognizes that to show God's power, he must accept and embrace his weakness. I want to encourage you today to accept your weakness and to rely upon your God. I will first be looking at the Apostle Paul and then the Lord Jesus Christ, as two men who accepted their weakness. In verse 7 to 9 of 2 Corinthians 4, you can see that Paul accepted his weakness. So in verses 7 to 9, you can see that Paul accepted his weakness. Paul's letter of 2 Corinthians was written to a church that was questioning his apostolic authority. Certain people had come into the church and were saying that Paul is not a real apostle. And of course, they were saying that they were real apostles. One of the great issues they raised against Paul is that he was just too weak to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. They said of Paul that his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. They were saying that he was too physically weak and did not have the oratory ability to be an apostle. This church is in a city, Corinth, that was status-obsessed. They prioritized strength and power. The culture had seeped into the church. It would kind of be the equivalent of a church today that would appoint elders that were just wealthy businessmen but, they, businessmen, but they didn't have the character to be elders. That is allowing the culture to seep into the church. In chapter 3, Paul answers one of the objections that the Corinthians have had to his ministry. So, so these super apostles were coming to Corinth with very glowing letters that other people were writing to them. And they showed the assembly of these letters in order to gain credibility and authority for, for them. The Corinthian church now wants Paul to also show these letters to the assembly. Yet Paul had already preached them the gospel that had converted them. Paul sees this as an example that they don't really understand the era that they live in. Because the era that they live in is no longer the old covenant, it is the new covenant. God has established Paul's apostolic authority not through letters, but through the spirit of the living God, who is attested by his spirit to Paul's ministry. And Paul goes on to explain from verse 
6 of chapter 3 to verse 6 of chapter 4, just how glorious this new covenant ministry is. And at the center of this ministry is the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel. In in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul compares the gospel of Jesus Christ to God creating light out of darkness. Paul says in verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in awe at this glorious treasure that he is able to proclaim, and he has received. He knows that this treasure, this gospel, has the power to shine into dark hearts, as it did in his. This is the gospel that changes lives. This is the message that Christ Jesus came to reconcile sinners through his death, is raised from the dead, and is the person where God's glory can permanently be seen and accessed. But in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul anticipates an objection. If this gospel is so glorious, why is it proclaimed by a man that has been opposed by so many, has suffered so much, and has demonstrated such weakness? Shouldn't the glorious gospel be displayed by equally glorious glorious proclaimers of the gospel? So then Paul goes on to explain why the glorious gospel is proclaimed by suffering, weak, proclaimers. He says in verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. First, it is important to note that this is Paul who is talking about himself and his fellow apostles. He is not primarily talking about you or me here. Let us begin by looking at the first phrase in this sentence. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Paul uses an analogy of a treasure and the vessel or jar where the treasure is stored. One would expect a glorious treasure to be stored in an equally glorious vessel. For example, in the Old Testament with Solomon's vessels, often they were very beautiful, where beautiful treasures were placed in a beautiful vessel. And the treasure that Paul refers to, as I mentioned, is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the treasure in this analogy. This treasure is stored in a jar of clay. And the readers in those days would instantly understand that a jar of clay was just not fit for a beautiful treasure. A jar of clay was something that most people, every commoner, would have. It is a common vessel that people of all economic statuses could make and afford. It cracks. It weakens over time. It shatters quite easily. It is like a priceless painting being stored in a dingy attic. Paul is saying that he is clay-like. He is weak, fragile, and frail. But the weakness and clay-likeness of the gospel's proclaimers are all part of God's plan. Why does God use people like this that are like jars of clay to store the greatest treasure the world has ever known? Well, it's in this sentence. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God knows the human heart. 
And he knows that if his messengers were strong and did not endure suffering, others would be quick to give credit to them for the work that God has done. And, they, and the messengers themselves would also be quick to take credit. For example, in the land of Egypt, when God miraculously rescues his people and splits the Red Sea, the people give credit to Moses, saying, This man, Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. So God brings weakness into the lives of his messengers to make sure that it's unmistakable, undeniable where the source of the power is from. It is from the Lord. A painter who wants to showcase their beautiful painting will often set it on a plain, unremarkable frame. This, the frame must not overshadow the painting. In the same way, the vessel must not overshadow the treasure. But how is Paul a jar of clay? Because at first glance, as I've thought about this, Paul really seems like a vessel of gold, right? He was educated by Gamaliel, the top rabbi of his day. He was a Roman citizen with a very privileged background. He has written some of the most eloquent sentences, chapters, and books the world has ever known. He may have not have been the world's greatest orator, but he certainly was a pretty good one as you look at some of his sermons in the, in the, in the book of Acts. You can see in verses 8 to 9 that Paul's clay-likeness is seen and exposed through the sufferings he endured. These sufferings showed Paul to be fragile, frail, and yes, weak. These circumstances he endured push him to see his weakness and to rely and depend and to trust in God's strength. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul uses a series of four antitheses to show his weakness. Antithesis are made up of two phrases that contrast each other. In verses 8 and 9, the first phrase refers to the suffering Paul endured. Afflicted, persecuted, perplexed, struck down. The second phrase refers to the divine deliverance that God provides. Not crushed, not driven to despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. Paul faced every affliction a person could imagine. Many a man would be crushed by these afflictions, but Paul was not. An example is found in Acts 14, verses 19 to 21. The text says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So Paul in this passage gets stoned, left for dead, gets up, and goes and ministers the next day and then returns to the same town he was stoned in. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have the courage to do that. And this isn't Paul's strength. 
But Paul gives the glory to God for the strength. Paul also tells of his trials in the end, at the end of the book of 2 Corinthians. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my people, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I mean, Paul really seems like Indiana Jones, right? He's constantly in danger. (laughs) He's constantly being struck down and and persecuted. Paul felt his clay-likeness as he pushed his scar-ridden and wounded body to the limits of what the human body could take. Yet let us not say that this is Paul's doing. He was supernaturally sustained by the Lord through these trials to continue to believe in the Lord and proclaim in the gospel. Paul accepted these sufferings to rely upon God more. We see that these sufferings made, God, made Paul rely on God more in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Paul tells the Corinthians of an affliction he endured. He doesn't exactly say what, he, what it was, but he compares it to a sentence of death. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. But that was to make us rely on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from the deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. The afflictions and trials that Paul faced drove him to the Lord. It drove him to plead with God for deliverance. It drove him to plead with God to show up and to show his surpassing power. In our present text and in the verses we just read, you can see that Paul accepts his weakness. He humbly admits that he's a jar of clay. He humbly admits that he must rely upon the Lord. He acknowledges that it is God who delivers him from the various trials he experiences. For Paul, any success in ministry, any deliverance from trial, and any converted soul is not due to him, but it is due to the power of the living God. He did not take credit for these successes, but he accepted his weakness and was driven to God. But for Paul, there is a greater reason for why he accepted his weakness. He accepted his weakness because he knew that Christ Jesus, his Lord, also accepted his weakness. And that's what we can see in verses 10 to 12, that Christ also accepted weakness. After Paul has spoken of how he is weak and God is strong, he goes on to further explain why he accepts weakness. The answer is that Christ accepts the weakness. In verses 10, 11, and 12, Paul shows how he follows Jesus' patterns of suffering to bring life to others. In verse 10, he says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
In verse 11, he further explains, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And in verse 12, he says, So death works in us and life in you. In each of these statements, Paul walks in Christ's sufferings for Christ's sake to bring life to his hearers who he'd preach the gospel to. Paul's sufferings bring life to many. He's following the death to resurrection pattern of Jesus Christ. In verse 10, Paul explains that the afflictions he endured can be seen as carrying in his body the death of Jesus. What does this mean? Well, Paul doesn't mean to say that he's wearing a cross around his neck. He doesn't mean to say that he has a tattoo of a cross on his arm. Nor is he referring to physical death, as Paul has not yet died. Paul is using a unique word in the Greek here for death that encompasses not just Jesus' death, but the sufferings leading up to his death. Paul is saying that as an apostle, he constantly faces deadly trials and sufferings that are in the pattern of the trials and sufferings that Jesus himself faced. Jesus himself says in John, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they also persecuted me. If the master suffered, the servant should also expect to suffer. Just as a police officer expects to be near crime, Christ's apostles are expected to suffer. It is part of the job description. A comfortable, easy life as an apostle is an oxymoron. Yet as Paul suffers, the indestructible, mighty, resurrected life of Jesus is seen through him. It is seen to others. People see through his sufferings and his endurance that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus did resurrect from the dead. The pattern of suffering to life continues in verse 11. Paul is being handed over to death. The same word handed over is used about Jesus as he is delivered or handed over to the chief priest in his trial. But this delivering over to death leads to Christ being glorified. Christ is glorified when Paul displays Christian joy and endurance despite suffering, and when Paul is delivered from suffering. An example of this is Paul and Silas as they get sent to jail by Herod in the book of Acts. While they're in prison, they are praying and singing hymns to God. And when they're in prison, then an earthquake comes, and the earthquake opens all the gates of the doors. And what does the Philippian jailer say? What must I do to be saved? He has seen the joy of the apostles, and he has seen the power of God to deliver them, and he instantly is concerned for the state of his soul. And he is saved. It is an example of the benefits that suffering for Christ has. So death works in us and life in you. Paul's argument in verses 10 to 12 is grounded in the truth that Christ also accepted weakness. Some of you might say 
that yes, Jesus Christ was the Son of God, but surely he didn't accept weakness to the same degree that human beings do. Yes, Jesus is fully God, that is true. But he is also fully man. And as a man, he was tired, hungry, and weak. He experienced the frailties, temptations, and sufferings, and yes, weaknesses, that we do. Hebrew 5.2 says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Jesus Christ knew what it meant to be weak. And the episode that shows Christ most clearly accepting his clay-likeness and his weakness was the events leading up to the cross and the cross itself. Jesus' acceptance of his weakness can be seen in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says that my soul is very sorrowful. Remain here and watch with me to his disciples. So what he's doing there, he's praying desperately to his father. And what is he praying about? Well, remember that he tells Peter, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. So even as a son of God, he knows he needs to rely upon his father for strength to endure temptation and sufferings that face him on the cross. So he is also praying that he wouldn't fall into temptation because he was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. But during this prayer, you also know he asks his father to pass over his cup of wrath that he's going to endure. But ultimately, he submits to the Father's will. He says, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. And Jesus continues to embrace suffering. When Jesus is arrested, Peter cuts off the guard's ear. Jesus heals the guard and says, do you think I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus' response is completely countercultural. The Roman emperors of that day would conquer by power. They would conquer by force. They would conquer by the strength of their armies. But Jesus knew that he must conquer by weakness. If he didn't die, death would not be defeated. Satan's kingdom would not be disarmed. And the penalty of debt would not be paid. So he refuses to conquer by power, but conquers through weakness. So then he marches to the cross. And at the cross, he continues to accept suffering and weakness. He endures the mocking of the crowds, the crown of thorns on his head, the nails driven through his hands. He endures the utter humiliation of being fully exposed at your weakest hour. He endures his weakness as being fully on display for the whole world to see. Christ accepted his weakness so that you may live. He was beaten for you, nailed to the cross for you, crucified for you. He faced the full wrath of God for you. He was killed so that you may have life. He was condemned so that you may be justified. If Christ did not accept his weaknesses, you would have no hope. Because through one man, Adam, sin came into the world. 
and sins are so offensive to a holy God that he cannot possibly overlook them. And human beings can never repay our debt on our own. Nor can we look to a sinful human being, as one sinner cannot justify another. As Ansem says, there is no one who can make the satisfaction except God himself. But no one ought to make it except man. Otherwise, man does not make satisfaction. It is necessary that God's wrath could only be satisfied by the perfect God-man. Jesus Christ had to live, suffer, and to die for you, so that you may live. As 2 Corinthians 5.20, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think how scandalous that verse is. The perfect Son of God became so identified with sin that the author can say he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteous of God. Friend, if you haven't trusted this Savior, know that God must judge you for your sin. He cannot tolerate your uncleanness. But Jesus Christ suffered on the cross and endured God's wrath so that you may live. Even today, would you turn away from your sins and put your faith in the Savior? Because if you believe in the Savior and repent of your sins, you shall be saved. So we see that Jesus embraced suffering to bring eternal life to his followers. So far, you have seen that Paul accepted his weakness and Christ accepted his weakness. But you might be asking, what does this mean for me? Well, it means that you also should accept your weakness. As I mentioned, this text is primarily about Paul the Apostle. And it is important to see the text in its context. Yet Paul also says in his first letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 11, verse 1, that Christians should be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So even as this text speaks to Paul, it also speaks to you. If Paul accepted his weakness, and if Christ accepted his weakness... You must also accept your weakness. What does that look like for you? Well, accepting your weakness means accepting that you are like clay. You are fragile. You are not strong. God fashioned you and created you. You have been created, not a creator. And the first thing you do if you're not a Christian is by receiving the gospel. Accepting your weakness, if you're not a Christian, means to humble yourself before the Lord. To say, Lord, I can't live this life on my own. I need you. I need you to save me. But for many of us who are Christians, we have humbled ourselves before the Lord. Yet there are different parts of our lives where we still walk in our strength rather than in Christ's weaknesses. Remember that you are weak and God is strong. Maybe you still think that you are strong. Well, if Paul the Apostle, who preached the gospel in all of the Mediterranean, relied upon our God, and Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, also relied upon God in his weakest hour, then, so, then you should as well, right? Because you're not Paul and you're not Jesus. So how much more should you also Rely upon God in your weakness. 
How do you know if you're relying upon God? Well, are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? Praying and reading the Bible at their heart are acts of depending upon the strength of God. When you pray, it is the ultimate sign of saying, Lord, I'm going to depend upon you and not on me. So are you praying? When you read the Bible, you depend upon God's word to sustain you and get you through the day. You are saying, Lord, I believe your word. I trust your word. I will humble myself before your word, and I will live by your word. Are you reading your Bible? Are you governing your life by your Bible? If you're not doing either of those things, then you might be um, acting more strong than you think. For some of you, you may be very aware of your weakness. You might be faced with your weakness every single day. Or maybe circumstances have pushed you to the limits of your strength. Remember that God is working through your weakness. He's displaying his power to others. He is shaping you, molding you, and crafting you into a more refined Christian. So accept your weakness. Accepting your weaknesses also means to accept God's will. Both Paul and Christ accepted that it was the will of, the God, will of God for them to suffer. They accepted that this was God's method of showing his power. And maybe you have endured a lot of suffering in your life. And you really know your weakness very acutely. And you've just begun to be angry at God for your weakness. You've, been, you've begun to be angry at God for your suffering. Remember that your Savior died. And if he accepted weakness, that means that the Christian faith isn't always triumphant. It is in the end. It is triumphant in the gospel. But often we are called to walk through weaknesses. In the verses that I mentioned earlier in the book of Acts, where Paul gets up, his, after he's stoned, he gets up to another town, immediately what he tells them is through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Trust in the gospel that Christ will sustain you in your weakness. Yet remember that God is using your suffering and your weakness for good in your life, even though you might not be able to see it in that moment. Don't despise your weakness. For others, you may think that you are too weak to be used by God. But God uses jars of clay to showcase his gospel message. In fact, when we, think, when we reflect upon this passage, it might be your weakness that precisely qualifies you to be used by God. So if you just feel, oh, I can't really share the gospel with someone, I'm too weak for that. Or if you feel like, yeah, I just don't have the spiritual vigor or strength to encourage other people in the faith. You, you might be the person that God wants to use to display his power through your weakness. Another way that you can display God's strength through your weakness is by giving your money to support gospel work because of all that Christ has done for you. For example, as Paul's argument goes on in 2 Corinthians, he gets to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he writes about the churches in Macedonia who in a severe test of affliction 
their abundance of, abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This poor, afflicted group of believers displayed their trust in God through giving to support gospel work. With inflation and prices rising in our city, I know we can certainly feel weak in this area. Yet God's power is seen through believers supporting gospel work, even in times of decline. And over the years, I've just seen this church do that again and again. You have been a very generous church. To Grace Fellowship Church, I want to exhort you and to continue to embrace weakness and rely on your Savior, Jesus Christ. Until Jesus comes back, it will be a temptation of any church to rely on her strength. But remember that you proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and that your power is seen through your weakness. And as I think about the history of our church, one of the things I've reflected upon is that perhaps the reason why God hasn't given us a building is to make us rely and depend upon him more and to continually be aware of our weakness and depend upon the Lord. He doesn't want us to get comfortable, but he wants his surpassing power to be seen from him. The future may be uncertain, but let that uncertainty drive you to God and remind you that his church is in his hands. And that is what I've loved about Grace Fellowship Church in my time over the past nine years here. You have been a church that has kept the, that kept the focus on Jesus Christ. And you have displayed the gospel amid your weakness. I remember the first time I went to Grace Fellowship Church. It was nine years ago. I walked into a little elementary school. And it was a church that wasn't very big. I think it was about 40 or 50 people. But God's spirit was there. We sang Christ-centered songs. The prayer was Christ-centered. And the sermon was Christ-centered. My heart burned within me as I recognized a church that relied upon God's power amid their weakness. And yes, the church has grown, but that impulse to rely upon God and his word has remained. You continue to be a church in the city that in your weakness proclaims the gospel, depends upon God in prayer, and relies on him. By God's grace, continue to do this. Continue to do what you're already doing. Accept your weakness as a church and rely upon God all the more. A young child who rides their bike for the first time is helped when they recognize their weakness and when they look to their parent. And their parent will come and their parent will take their hands around the bike and guide the bike as the child rides. That is what your heavenly father does for you. When you rely upon him, he guides you, strengthens you, helps you. So rely on this God. Hold fast to this God. Keep on running to this God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are not strong 
even though sometimes we believe that we are. But we pray, God, that you may help us through this message to continue to depend upon your strength. I pray for this church, Lord, that they may continue to be a church that depends upon your strength and makes the gospel known and proclaims Christ. Father, I pray that if there's any unbelievers here today, that you may save their souls, allow them to see their weakness, and trust in Christ. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.